verse 13. And it says, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. And his servants came near. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you for allowing us to be here this day to learn more of your word and, and how you take care of your folks, your people, Lord, and even through those that are not chosen to be your people, people that sometimes we don't even know the names of, you still use for your purpose. We ask that you use us for your purpose and allow us and help us to do your will. Please help us as we study, uh, continue our study here in Second Kings and Chronicles, Lord, and help us, Lord God, to have a more appreciation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're not starting in chapter 5, but I read that from chapter 5 because we need to understand that um, sometimes when we think, well, this is ridiculous, Lord, what you're asking me to do. You, you might say, I don't use that word towards God. I never talk to God that way. Well, be real with yourself. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we question what God is asking us to do or telling us to do in his word. And let's remember that when we're using our Bibles, that is God's word. Just as if he was standing right here speaking his word to us or the prophets are telling us what God is saying. It is his word. And we're going to get to chapter five today and through chapter five. But Naaman need to realize that what God says, no matter how ridiculous it seems to sound to us, what God says, do it. And you'll see some amazing results always with God. So we're back in chapter three and uh, we, we left off last week. And I was telling you about uh, Joram or Joram is the other name that's used for him. And that there are two Jorams uh, in the Bible around this same time. They're both uh, related to each other because they're brother-in-laws. Joram was the son of Jehoshaphat and he married uh, Athalia, the daughter of King Ahab. And she was the sister of Joram, Ahab's son. Chapter one, chapter three, verses one through three says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, Baal, that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jer- Jer- Jeroboam, excuse me, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So understand that false worship is just as bad as false gods, meaning that you may not be worshiping those idols, but you can still have false worship. You could be having vain worship towards the Lord. And as we read there, Jehoram um, he he was an evil king. He wasn't as bad as his father, but he was still bad. He still was evil. When we read through verses five through eight, we see that there's a. Um, or we start we start in here in chapter three, and we see that there's a a campaign, a joint campaign against with three kings against Moab. But as we 
uh, read these first few verses, there's a planning campaign. So there's a, a rebellion of Misha, king of Moab. Something that I, I was reading about last night, I was sharing with my wife last night that I found amazing is that when you read verse four, when we, we consider the riches and of kings and, and the treasury and what they had, it may look different from us, but, um, it says there in verse four that he had 100,000 lambs. Well, he gave 100,000 lambs to the king of Israel and the, and the wool of 100,000 rams. You know, that's a lot of animals. Um, he regularly gave that to the king. That was King Ahab. That's who he gave it, gave it to. And it's, when you say regular, it was like often. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like a, as a tribute, probably once a year. Um, do any of you all, and maybe you do, I don't know, I know I don't, have enough land for rams and lambs or uh, um, used to to uh, graze? I mean, you, they don't just graze, they're not just, they're just not going to graze on your front yard. They're going to graze there and they're going to go somewhere else and they're going to go somewhere else. This this is a lot. So that showed you how much this king had. But once Ahab died, he was like, I'm done. Uh, I'm going to rebel against the king of Israel. Verses 9 uh, through 10, as we read here, says, So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for their army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What you need to consider is that these are three different armies coming together to work together as allies. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase or um, heard it quoted that an army marches on its stomach. Yeah, that's true. I know when I've been on deployments out in the middle of nowhere, I get hungry, I get hangry. And, you know, it's not doesn't feel good. And there's a hundred of us feeling the same way. It doesn't feel good. But I'm going to tell you, let us go without any water. Let us not have any water in our canteens or uh, our packs that we have it becomes even worse and these men they had no water and what this meant was no no water there was not going to be in the victory so Jehoshaphat wanted to still seek God he wanted to know what God wanted them to do and he was told that uh, he was told about Elijah Elisha in verse 11 in verse 11 it says but Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may acquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphath, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. When we read about the accounts of Elijah, Elisha and Elijah, it's very short. We almost get the, the sense when we're reading about them as we read about them that Elijah just met Elisha and then they they wanted just a little bit and then Elijah went to heaven or was taken away with the chariots of fire well when it's saying here that he poured um, water on the hands where am I here verse um, in verse 11 there it says Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah it meant that he served him. Uh, he trained under him. So I don't know how much time 
pass between the time that Elijah went and got Elisha, you know, and called him out of the field until he went, he, uh, he was taken. But there is a time when he trained under him to figure out what he needed to do uh, to serve the Lord. Well, notice who goes to see Elisha or who goes to whom. It wasn't that they called Elisha and said for him to come to see us. All three of the kings went to go see him together. And Elisha shows his indignation for uh, Jehoram. And remember I talked about David and other men um, when God would say, but because of my servant David or because of this person, I will do this for you. Uh, Elisha did not like, I mean, he didn't have a good, good thoughts about Jehoram because he knew he was so evil. But then he says in verse uh, 14, I believe, he says, uh, but he says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not for, not that I regard the presence of a Jehoshaphat king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But it was because of Jeho- um, Jehoshaphat that Elijah decided, I'm going to help. So there's a prophecy given in verses 15 through 20. And he tells him them what to do. In verse 15, he tells them to go get a, a musician. I don't know why. Um, not, no details are given uh, why he asked for a musician instead of, instead of diggers. But um, what he was told was that a river will flow with water. And that they would not hear or see, they wouldn't see the wind, they wouldn't see the waters, they, they wouldn't understand that there's water coming from somewhere. They would not know, but the water would flow into those, um, into the, those ditches that were eventually dug. In verse 18, he says that it's not a trivial thing for the Lord, per se. Um, it says, in this simple matter, or a trivial thing, in the sight of the Lord, he will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. What he's saying there is that God can not only just can provide you water, he can also help you defeat um, your enemies. That is, is, is simple for the Lord. Jehovah shows his acceptance in verses 19 through 20 of the morning offering by fulfilling his words. So what should this have told to Jehoram? What should have told to all the other kings prior when God would deliver them or God would provide for them? It should have showed him how wonderful and, and great God is and that God does what he says he will do. But again, Jehoram is evil. And we, as we go through the scriptures, we, we see that he did not obey the Lord. Now I want to pause here and remind you that no, I'm not reading all of the scriptures right now. We're covering first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. There's a lot of scripture here, and we in our time don't have time um, on the sun, on Sunday morning doing Bible class to read everything that's here because there's a lot. So I've asked you and I encourage you to please make sure that you are reading and you're studying at home. So then when we come here. I can give you some extra details maybe that are, um, you're not finding there. We will read some of the scriptures, but um, please remember that. So when we get to verse 21, we see that when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water. 
And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this blood, the kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. Consider this, that when there is infighting within the church, people outside the church will hear about it, will know about it. Uh, people within within the church, throughout other congregations, will hear about it as well. Uh, one example would be when you remember when Paul was talking, uh, was writing, and he was talking about those two um, sisters who were, you know, not getting along with one another. He was not there, and he knew about it because talk goes out. Consider what I just said about when there's infighting in the church. If there's something going on right here, there's an Anchorage congregation. Other people tend to to hear about it. So you got the Edomites, you have Israel, uh, you have Israel, and you have Judah. All all of a sudden now fighting. I mean together. But as we've been reading, they didn't always get along with one another, and everybody knew that. Other people knew that, and so now they're fighting together. And the Moabites, they come up and they see this blood. They're thinking, oh, they finally took care of each other, and I'm sure there's plenty of spoil. Let's go down there. Now, the water was there and it looked red because the earth, uh, the soil in that area was red. It was just a red, red soil, red, red clay. Like, um, I know parts of Georgia where my, my family are from, uh, down in Valdosta, there's a lot of red clay down there. And when it does rain, it can, I guess, look like blood. Um, so in a rush, they go down in a disarray. If, if you, if you're thinking, oh, there's gold and, and anything else that I can plunder, you're not thinking about going to fight because the people are dead. So they went down there in disarray. And God had a second victory in this. When Israel took Canaan, they were to spare the fields and fruit trees, according to Deuteronomy 20 verses 19 through 20. But this was not Canaan. This was Moab. Moab attempts to escape when uh, the Israelites take up arms. And then while they're trying to escape, some reason they thought, well, the king there, they should give up, uh, let's see in verse 26, a son, and sacrifice a son. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation, indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their land. God has never, never asked us for a human sacrifice in, in the sense that it's talked about here. But why did the Moabite king, you know, give a sacrifice? What was his thoughts? Why, why was it an indignation against Israel? We're not told. Um, there, there was some frustration among themselves, maybe, for being uh, of the occasion of a human sacrifice of, of the eldest son. I don't know. It would seem, however, that this kind of, of of sadness, this kind of frustration, madness would have caused them to fight harder and punish such an act. 
Or it could be that it was um, indignation of the Moabites because of the sacrifice of the crown prince, and they fought all the harder until Israel and Edom uh, ceased uh, fighting. We don't know. We're not told. But obviously, there was something else going on there. In either case, God has never asked us to put our children upon a some idol god or or, or a furnace or uh, on a grill to um, basically sacrifice them as though that was going to satisfy or please God. But they were not trying to satisfy God or Jehovah. They were trying to satisfy some some idol, talking about the Moabites. So in chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 7. We will see the miracles of Elijah and cleansing of Naaman, and, and we'll get here in the first seven verses about the, the, um, the oil, and the widow's oil. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elijah, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared your Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it out, excuse me, pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt. debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. So as we read here, my husband had been among the sons of the prophets. We read a lot about the sons of the prophets uh, helping and serving the, the prophets, uh, such as the man of God, such as Elisha. And they did before with Elijah. Elisha uses what she has. Not just a few, he tells her. He tells her to go out and, and, and basically borrow all that you can. And I think her and her sons did a great job by going out and just getting everything they could, I believe, because of their belief in God. Um, what we see here is that obedience is the key when it comes to serving God. The miracle ceased when the vessels cease. And she was able to pay all her debts. Well, we notice in verses 8 through 9, uh, the Shunammite and her son, and her kindness was extended before she knew he was a man of God. More accommodations for were prepared for him. And, and again, please make sure you're reading this. Uh, Elisha would come by past this area um, from time to time, and um, she talked to her husband and said, let's make a room for him. And they did. And, and, and remember also, he's not just by himself. He has a servant with him. In verses 11 through 17, we see Elisha gets and God's approval of this good woman. He asked if she needed any help with those around her. And she said, no, I dwell with my own people, meaning that she was at peace with those around her. Um, she has no son, though, uh, her, his servant says. And the answer is the removal of shame. 
but she has no sin. At least not sin that is causing her to be shameful in front of folks, except that she has no son. Jehovah God answered her, answers her um, with the greatest possible joy, something that she hadn't asked for through the, the prophet, but it did bring her joy. When we get to verse 18 through 20, let's look at that. It says, And the child grew, she had conceived. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of your young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. What I think about this part of the, as we're reading in in 2 Kings chapter 4, what she did is the same thing that we should do. You know, we are fortunate in our time that God has made it so that I don't have to go through James or I don't have to go through uh, Mike to seek God. I can talk to God and know that he hears me. During this time, I'm not saying people could not talk to God, but the way they did was through the prophets. Now, she knew this man of God. She knew that Elijah could talk to God directly for her. And so she had a problem. She had a challenge. And she said, I know how to take care of this. And that is to go to God. We need to do that all the time. No matter what is happening in our lives, large or small, nothing is too large and nothing too small for the Lord to handle. Let's take our challenges. Let's take our problems to the Lord. Well, she goes to the only one she can, that can help her, as I said. And when, uh, when she is greeted, she is saying all is well. Excuse me. She tells her husband that all is well because she believes in God. She's trusting in God. All is well. I just need to go see this man of God. In verses 25 to 26, she is met by Gehazi, but she will not be deterred. She is not going to let him stop her from going to go see the man of God. Um, sometimes, sometimes, uh, well, when I was still serving, there were those that would sit outside my office and they would run what they thought interference for me. I never asked anyone to do that for me, but you know, people would come to see me and they would try to handle my problems for me. My folks were like, okay, he's busy. Let's do this for you. I've never asked anyone to do that for me, but kind of this is what Gehazi, Gehazi is doing. He's, he's trying to see what can he handle without bothering the man of God. Well, his, his efforts bore no visible results. Um, in verses 33 through 37, we see that the man of God goes in. He, he goes in and, and eventually the child is uh, revived and he is given back to his mother. The son is restored and she has a grateful heart. Verse 38 through 41, we see a purifying of food that Elisha did. And Elisha returned to Gilgal. And there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine. 
and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew. And then what I hear is like on a in a movie on a TV show, dun dun dun. Uh, though they did not know the, what they were, I'm like, okay. When I read that, that already tells me something bad's going to happen because they didn't even know what that was. So I know that some of you may like to go out and um, this is a side note and do some foraging and stuff. Make sure when you're foraging during the spring and summertime, you know what you're getting because there's there's poison out there, and that's what I think about. I'm giving y'all my thoughts. What I think about when I'm reading the scripture. Um, cause it comes to life to me that way. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So he said, then bring some flour. And he put it in the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful, uh, in the pot. God takes care of his own. Then by miracles, what we see here and providence that we have now, um, he, he had miracles of providence then, but, by, but now by providence and guidance through his word, the Bible, you can have false doctrine, which could be death in the pot. Only the working of God's word can cure it. What I'm trying to say is that it may look like it's edible. It may look like it's truth. That is God, uh, what people are saying to you, what someone standing right here could be saying. But it is, it is going to be, um, it's incumbent upon you. It's important that you get God's word. You read it for yourself. You study it for yourself and don't allow someone to lead you astray. Um, because false doctrine sometimes can look like the real deal. But as always, some death or some untruth in it. Then there's the miracles of the loaves in verses 42 to 44. It says, Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Should I set this before 100 men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So man often questions the ways of God. We do not. When I say man, I'm talking about all of us. Sometimes we, we question the ways of God. The God's will will always be done and God's will is always right. That gets us to chapter five. And when we start learning about Naaman, verses one through four says, now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were the prophet, were the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Naaman hears of Jehovah's prophet through an unknown girl. God uses um, anyone he wants to to accomplish his means. 
The person does not have to receive praise for what they do. Give God the glory. Just do your job for God. Don't worry about getting the praise. Don't worry about getting the glory. Just do the will of of the Lord. Verse 5, we see that the king sends a gift uh, befitting uh, Naaman's status. The king of Syria assumed the king of Israel had as much control over his prophets as he himself did. This is false religion. Syrian, the Syrian king had control of all his prophets. But then we see that when, um, chapter, verse seven, this Jehoram makes the mistake of not understanding the situation. You know, Jehoram was like, and it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. You know, uh, it took someone to speak up before war happened because this uh, this king, uh, Joram, was ready to figure out how can I go to war with the king of Syria? Him thinking that I'm God and I can I can heal him. And it's because the king of Syria thought, well, you know, the king can make this this prophet heal. He has the power, more power than God. Elijah understands and calls for Naaman so that Jehovah might be magnified in verses 8. Verses 9 through 12, we see that Elijah sends his servant with Jehovah's word, not Elisha's word, but with God's word. There will be no mistake about the source being uh, Elisha himself. Pride of the office in the person is what we see in verses 11 through 12, where it says, but Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over his, over this place and heal the leprosy and not the, uh, are not the Abana and the Farfar, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? Because Elisha told him to go dip in the uh, Jordan seven times. He didn't want to do that. Jordan was not clean, like, uh, as far as he was concerned, like these two rivers in, in Damascus. But again, some unknown people, all we, we hear about them is that they're servants. Um, they, they came to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then? When he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sand of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. You know, great results do not always take great deeds to accomplish them. Sometimes in, in religion, um, it, in, we, we, we think that we have to have so much suspense, fireworks flying behind me. Hand, I got to have some, some fire in my hand. I knew a preacher that was very, very uh, about in the church that was all about sensationalism. He was trying to get people's attention. So he would had he knew he I don't know if he practiced magic or whatever, but I just know that one Sunday we were I don't know what we were learning about. See I was even distracted, don't even remember what he was talking about. All I do remember is that as he was talking, fire came up on his hand. I don't know how he did that. I knew knew it wasn't a miracle or anything. Probably some 
from a joke shop or something like that. Another time he had a piece of wood that he broke and, and did something. It was all these things that happened. I don't even remember what he talked about. I don't even know what, what scripture he was talking about. God's word is enough. I don't need to have some magic show up here uh, to show you the, how wonderful God is. We can read it right here. Seven is a perfect number. We learned about that during our study in Revelation um, last year. And obedience is required. Faith and obedience is required both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. In verses 15 through 17, we see that Naaman holds to the idea that you must be present where the God resides or take earth from the territory with you. He says in verse 15, and he returned to the man of God and he and all his uh, aides and came and stood before him and he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God. <clears throat> Excuse me. In all the earth, except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. So again, he thought, well, I need to take this earth with me so that when I go back home and I'm worshiping or I'm thinking about the Lord of Israel, I can stand on this earth or you put my hands on this earth or, or set up. All. I don't know, but he knew he needed to take that with him. Naaman acknowledges in verse 18 his duties of the office and asks that Jehovah pardon any sins he might incur in fulfilling the office. Elijah can only send him in peace. Knowing God will provide uh, if he if his heart is set to do God's will. We get to verse 20. I know we're moving right along here. Verse 20 of chapter 5. It says, but Gehazi, and there's punishment that's coming. The servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian. While not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, And we already know this is a lie because Elisha did not send him. Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. There's a second lie there. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. And they carried them on ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. I, I wonder, as, as, as I was reading this and studying this, did he forget who he served, who he worked for? This this is a man that, that taught to God. God talked to him. God told him things to tell other people. And he thought he could hide this from the man of God, but also from God. Now he went in and stood before his master, Elijah, and, excuse me, master. Elijah said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? He said, your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, do not, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants, 
Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous, as white as snow. We get to chapter 6. Well, before we go to chapter 6, I want to mention that sin has does have its punishments. Many times in this life, but always in the next, if it's not repented of and asked for forgiveness. So in chapter 6 and 7, we see the wars between uh, with Ben-Hadad and the deliverance of Samaria. And the first thing we, uh, we read about in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 6 is about the floating axe head. There, are, there is more room that's needed for all the people that are there. And so Elijah agrees to, to go with the folks in verse 3 um, as they go to build a bigger place for them to stay. In verse, verses 4 through 5, we see that there's an axe that was borrowed. And it was a terrible thing to lose anything that you borrowed, but especially if you were poor, because you had no way of paying it back. Well, Elijah, in verses 6 through 7, makes the axe head float and is recovered. Read it for yourself, but you will see that the axe head fell in the water, and it doesn't. They're not even today, it doesn't flow. I don't care what kind of technology we have today. But Elijah was allowed... Uh, through God through Elijah was allowing it to, to float so he could retrieve it. Verses eight, nine, and ten, we see we see that there's a camp and that the king of Syria is standing in. And his servants say he says to his servants, My camp would be in such and such place, and I would do this and that, and he's talking about what exactly he's gonna do. Well in verse nine we see that, and the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down here, down there. It was almost as if he was sitting right there with the king of Syria to know what was being said. When verse 10, he's, the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once, um, but twice. Not just once or twice. Then the king of Syria says, uh, in verse 11, there must, he, he's, he's intimating that there must be a traitor. Um, whatever I do, they already know. So somebody must be telling them from, from our camp. Well, God is greater in power than any traitor that could exist. In verse 12, it says, and one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in, is in Israel, tells the king of Israel, the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what, what shall we do? Understand that one plus God is always a majority and is always victorious. You don't need no more than God. But if you are with God, you're one plus God. And God is already victorious. We, we win. That's what we say often here, right? And we need to believe that. Um, well, the man of God asked God to allow his eyes uh, to be open. And what I encourage us to do is let our eyes be open spiritually to what God has in store for us. In verse 18, 
It says, so when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people. I pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. So the blindness here, some will say that this is mental blindness. Some will say it's physical blindness. But God could do it any way he pleased. Whatever way it was, these men did not know where they were at. So Elijah takes them to the heart of Israel. And the king of Israel, the king of Israel wants uh, to kill them. He wants eagerness in a physical victory. But in verses 22 to 23, we understand that to kill them would not have helped. Syria would have had a defeat only at that time. They had other men, right? And would have continued to attack and plunder and ven- uh, and with vengeance. God wanted Syria to know they could do nothing unless he, Jehovah, allowed it. Verses 24 through chapter 7, we see the famine in uh, Samaria and what happens, uh, what, what Elijah does. Well, there's an intensity of the siege and famine um, that we can also read about in Deuteronomy 28, 45 to 58, something similar. A donkey is unclean. And his head is at least edible, yet they were selling this to eat. Dove's dung is a lot of gathering uh, for just a little bit. I mean, people were, were eating this. Uh, I was I was um, doing some research and that $2.60 a pound is what they were selling. They could have sold the dung for. I'm just thinking about it. It's so disgusting. But it would be like $50 today. Because there was a, there was such a famine, they were turning to things that ordinarily you don't. I mean, how many of you all out there eating donkey heads and and going after the doves or the ravens out here and, and gathering up their dung? I know no one's going to raise their hand because none of us do that. Um, and if you do, I'll just shield my eyes. Uh, cannibalism is at its worst. We read in verses 28 through 29, one woman says to another one, let's boil your son and eat him today and then tomorrow or eat mine. And so they do that, but then the next day, she's like, no. She hid her son, and so she's complaining about it. It is terrible. And this king, in verse 30, now when the king had heard about this, about the words of the women, that he tore women, he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He was he was mourning. Uh, then he said, God, do so to me and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So there's a messenger that's sent. He's actually an executioner. And Elijah tells him to hold, hold him outside, um, the executioner goes to carry out the threat of the king. And so Elijah said, hold him outside, for the king has changed his mind and is right behind him a short way. Now, the situation is so bad, the king asked Elijah why he should wait any longer for the end to come. Why not give up now and, and just die in verse 33? Well, we get to verse 1 of chapter 7, and we see that Elijah predicts the end of the siege and famine by showing how inexpensive food would be the very next day. But one of the king's advisors does not believe, and his doom is also predicted. He will see it with his own eyes, but he will not enjoy it. We will have to end here and pick up on uh, chapter 7, verse 3 through 11. I ask that you please read uh, at least those verses there, chapter 3 through 11. And and next week, we will get, we're going to get through...
um, chapter 13 of First Kings, and we'll dabble a little bit into Second Chronicles chapter 21 as well. Thank you all for being here this morning, both in person and online. We are dismissed.